0: Slowdown Welcome back to our bi-weekly podcast Slow News in some moving times, amongst other on the African continent and within our team. By showing actually the latest satellite no, Slowdown. According to the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, In at least 20 African countries, elections are scheduled for this year of 2019. Nigeria made the start with its presidential elections last weekend on 23rd of February. I'm Luisa and will guide you through this podcast about the Nigerian elections and elections coverage of the so-called African election year. But before we take a closer look at today's topic, Valerie, on behalf of the whole team, would like to give you a short follow-up on our fourth episode. Two weeks ago, we looked with you behind the headlines of the crisis in Venezuela. We received
1: some feedback to this podcast and would like to share some more thoughts with you. That's right, Luisa. Before we start discussing this year's elections in many African countries, we feel the need to address some concerns that were raised about our previous podcast where we talked about the current situation in Venezuela. We are very critical towards our own work, and that's why we always like to receive feedback and discuss different perspectives. Before going into details, we want to underline that we had no intention of presenting a skewed picture of Venezuela or doubting the democratic process taking place there at the moment. In political crises that you cover from a different country, it's not always easy to find the right wording, but that's why it's even more important to try. Even though one of our phrases in the last episode saying Juan Guaido declared himself as the interim president has been widely used in international media, it is misleading. In fact, Juan Guaido assumed the role as interim president of Venezuela because that is his duty as president of the National Assembly. He therefore acted in accordance with the Venezuelan constitution. So Guaido's actions should be seen as an integral part of a democratic process and power transition in Venezuela. Nevertheless, Nicolás Maduro, the former president, still views himself as president in Venezuela. And, even though policemen and women and soldiers have begun to desert and leave the country, Maduro is still largely supported by the military. This should be considered when we talk about the situation there. Maduro continued ruling in the authoritarian way that his predecessor Hugo Chavez had initiated. In our summary of Chávez's rule, we believe we presented him neither in too much of a positive nor in too much of a negative light. We are aware of the fact that he was a very controversial political figure. Even after his death, scholars still debate the impact of his presidency on the country. We attempted to show both sides of the debate. As we were made aware that we didn't live up to that claim entirely, we want to add some more information on Chávez. When Chávez was elected as president in 1998, Venezuela had been ruled democratically for 40 years. Once in office, Chavez started to rewrite the constitution. He gave more power to the executive branch and restrained the system of balance that was there before. Chavez had the power over vast amounts of oil, and oil prices were very high during most of his tenure. His management of the resources partly led to the economic problems that Venezuela has been having for years now. Chavez overspent on social spending and imposed strict price controls, leading to the then highest inflation rate in the world and food shortage. He also nationalized a lot of private sector companies, among others the oil industry, which led to a decline of 30% in oil production during his presidency. His administration was not at all prepared for a potential drop in oil prices or an economic crisis in general. When both of those happened, Venezuela slid into an economic and eventually humanitarian crisis. Chavez's campaign and presidency were very much based on propagating social change and improving the situation of poor Venezuelans. He was very popular among the poorer population, especially in the first years of his presidency. He wanted to bring primary health care to the most disadvantaged districts and improve access to education. Therefore, he started bringing in well-educated doctors from Cuba, for example. However, he didn't manage to fully implement his ambitious plans. Healthcare facilities were not built in time, Cuban doctors were withdrawn again, and many Venezuelans' high expectations of his program could not be met. Concerning education. Under Chavez, more people got public education and completed an education than before. However, this reform was accompanied by high ideological indoctrination. This means that the state was involved in all parts of the educational system and with it Chavez Party's ideology. In general all these initiatives were not well institutionalized. This means that they didn't function in the long term because they were only based on Chavez populist rhetoric. We hope that we could address the problems that came up after our podcast appropriately. For this correction we considered both academic research and insights from Venezuelans. We are always open to feedback and criticism and we will take all the concerns about our previous podcast into consideration for our future journalistic work.
0: With our reflections after the last podcast in mind, we are happy to now present you another episode of our slow news podcast, moving our focus to another continent, Africa. As mentioned earlier, At least 20 out of the 54 countries on the continent will hold elections and media talk about another African election year after 2018 having marked already important elections across the continent. The troubled Democratic Republic of Congo was the last one to having gone to the polls last year after a delay of the elections of two years. Also the first elections on the African continent in 2019 were delayed, but for a considerably shorter period of one week. Finally, last Saturday, on the 23rd of February, millions of Nigerians went to the polls. The start of the African election year was made. To get an overview of those general elections in Nigeria, we have the chance to talk to Kelechi Amako, a Nigerian currently living in Aarhus. My colleague Juliette prepared some questions. Hey Kelechi! So over
2: 84 million eligible Nigerian voters were set to go to the polls on the 23rd of February. As Africa's most populous country with its biggest economy and democracy, the elections in Nigeria were widely watched by the region and international community. Among the 73 presidential candidates, the outgoing president Muhammadu Buhari from the All-Progressive Congress and former vice president Atiku Abubakar from the People's Democratic Party were the top two contenders. What can you tell us about these two Nigerian figures and what are the main points of their electoral manifesto?
3: Okay, so um, the incumbent actually has been a crusader of corruption, of um, of fighting corruption, and um, that was actually the basis of his um, campaign throughout the whole 36 states of the country. He was also um, preaching the fact that um, the terrorist activities needs to be stamped out totally. Um, actually, we give him kudos for what he did in the first four years and um, there's still more room to actually perform in terms of um, fighting terrorism in the country and he also based his um, um, campaign promises on that. On the other hand, um, the opponent, the biggest um, opposition party, that's the People's Democratic Party was um, basing his campaign on the fact that um, the economy was not doing well and they needed to actually revamp it and they needed like technocrats and they needed people that understood what it means to actually revamp the economy to come in the candidate also preached the fact that there were some um, government agencies that needed to be unbundled and sold to the private um, individuals to run it, pri- um, run it well and um, that was what he based his um, campaign on and they went also at loggerheads in um, calling names and um, peddling fake news and um, all sorts but in the end, um, those were the two major things that the two candidates actually spoke about
2: The general elections for president and national assembly members were first expected on the 16th of february but a mere five hours before the opening of the polling station the nigerian election commission decided to postpone the vote a week after citing logistical challenges can you explain us why this decision was taken so late and how did it affect the turnout
3: okay um the unfortunate announcement by the Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, five hours to the election was um, quite um, a surprise to every Nigerian because even the president, the vice president, had to travel down to their hometown to actually vote only to wake up and um, see that the elections were postponed. And um, to call them some slack, I I, I I observed that they experienced some logistical issues. They were unable to transport some um, needed materials for the elections before the day. They also had um, three um, key spots, three states in the country where um, the, the transported materials actually got burned. And then um, you know what it means to actually reprint them and have it ready before the elections. And one of the reasons that they um, chairman gave about it is the fact that he wanted a situation whereby every polling unit in the country actually starts at the same time and not having some people start and some others are not yet ready to start so he took the harsh decision and um, said okay let's have it one week after. And um, to some extent it had an effect on the outcome of um, the voters because people had to travel um, to their hometowns and asking them to go back again was a difficult thing and that was why um, out of the 84 million that actually were eligible to vote, we had only about 30. 39 or there 30 about million people that voted, that's about one third of, of the voting um, class that voted in the end on the 23rd of February. That shows that there was a whole lot of voters apathy, party and um, it's quite terrible, but I'm sure that they've learned the lessons and um, it will not be repeated in 2023.
2: Although there were some pockets of violence that led to the death of at least 16 people in northern Nigeria, the process on Saturday was peaceful in most of the states. This is a noticeable improvement on previous elections conducted since the country returned to democracy in 1999. What were the security challenges in the organization of these elections?
3: Um, well, I am not privy to security details, but from a concerned citizen's position, you would know that um, the election was a tense one that had so many things at stake and at some flashpoints in the country and um, there were people that actually had some battles to actually um, fight um, politically and then um, actually save their political life and then um, to some extent some some persons actually died which were unfortunate but um, um, on the long long run, um, we didn't experience um, so much of electoral violence as it has always been in the past. Um, I think um, the security um, apparatus needs to be um, congratulated for that and um, I look forward to seeing a situation whereby we have elections that are seamless, we have elections that no blood is lost, no life is shed, um, no life is um, lost or no one actually loses anything that belongs to him or her because of his going to the polls to actually elect a new leader. I, I, I foresee a situation whereby in 2023 Nigerians go to the electoral, um, the polling units to actually vote who they want to vote for without being cajoled or without being killed or molested or frightened and, I, I, and I'm and i sure that it will happen in no short time. Yeah.
2: The Electoral Commission announced on Wednesday the 27th that the incumbent Muhammadu Buhari is declared the winner with 56% of the vote. At the moment, the opposition rejects the outcome. Since Monday, both supporters of Buhari and Atiku Abubakar were claiming victory using results from their own polling units posted under the hashtag Buhari is winning and Atiku is winning. Were there any irregularities in the counting of the votes that could discredit the official results declared by the Electoral Commission?
3: Um, well, I still monitor the happenings in the country this morning and um, there's a known body known as Yaga. Um, they are known for the new bill known as um, um, the not too so young to run bill which they passed into law that enabled young ones to run and then um, while the chairman of that body was speaking this morning they carried out um, a, a, a poll and they found out that what the INEC actually um, mentioned as the um, final results were actually Something that could be believed because it actually tallied with what they had and what they actually collated on their own. Um, the process of collation is actually a long one and it's actually done manually. Um, yeah there were some pockets of um, places where um, issues happened and um, maybe people were not able to vote and probably there might be what the opposition might want to um, hinge on to actually fight for a case but all this would only be settled at the law court and um, that's how um, the situation would be but as it stands now the incumbent has won and um, the opposition can go to the court and um, if the win then all fine and good but if not the court will decide um but from my own end I I, I can't sit stand here and tell you that um there were irregularities with the counting or with, with the um coalition because it was a painstaking um um process that took about three nights and everyone kept vigil looking at the T V and um listening to the radio and then following up online and trying to ensure that everything went the way it was meant to go. And that's that's how I, I, I think about it. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Keleshi, for this insight on Nigerian elections.
0: With these elections in Nigeria, several online publications put focus on the country, which is normally rather underreported. My colleague Luis has taken a look at some of the headlines this past week. They can give us an idea of how different outlets have chosen to frame the Nigerian elections. There are of course a lot of different publications and platforms we could have looked at. So this is just a snippet of what is out there. We've picked some headlines from bigger anglophone media like Al Jazeera, which is based in Qatar and funded by the Qatari state. Then we look at The Guardian, which is considered to be a very liberal and progressive paper. So let's have a look. Last Friday, the day before the Nigerian elections, Al Jazeera published an article with the headline Can Nigeria deliver credible elections? That title already suggests that there is something rotten about the elections. The subheading of the piece was Will Nigerians finally get to elect a new president in a free and fair election
4: after a week's delay? What do you think of that, Louise? Well. When you see a headline like that, you immediately get the feeling that the elections are not trustworthy at all and that the outcome is already questionable before the elections have even taken place. The article also suggests that these elections were postponed for the same reasons as the past two presidential elections were back in 2011 and 2015. Even though elections in Nigeria are known to have been corrupt in the past, we can't always start speculating about corruption immediately. I think the publication is using a frame that they have used before to make readers think of Nigeria in the same way as they always do. However, the electoral system in Nigeria has seen a number of changes since the past election. As the last elections in 2015, which Buhari won, were described as a charade by observers, one of his major actions was pushing for electoral reforms. Also, Nigeria's Electoral Commission, INEC, has embraced technology to ensure fair and free elections. This does not mean that the elections are now fully electronic, but the introduction of permanent voter cards, the so-called PVCs, which are verified by electronic card readers to accredit voters, has proven a major leap. Earlier, problems like impersonation and multiple voting were common tactics of manipulation. Those problems have been minimized through this two-step authentication system, as PVCs are not as easy to fake as simple paperwork. Still, INEC just proved that it has continued struggling with logistical problems. The postponement of the elections had a huge economic impact, not only on the national but mainly on the personal level of each citizen. So that was quite a setback for the country. But according to Lagos-based journalist Yomi Kasim, There is a silver lining with INEC proving its commitment to secure the elections by distributing voting materials at the last possible moment. Also Richard Klein, a senior advisor for elections at the National Democratic Institute an observer of national polls in Nigeria, insists that elections are much better today. In an article by Kazim, the expert says, however, that it isn't so much about whether Nigeria has a good electoral system but whether the procedures that secure the elections will actually be followed on election day. Unfortunately, though, most media don't really include these latest developments and electoral procedures in the country, and that makes it difficult for readers to get an understanding beyond the African stereotype of corruption. Thank you, Luis.
0: As part of the earlier mentioned article, Al Jazeera also published a 45-minute long documentary with the title Nigeria's Future, Failed State or African Superpower? The introduction to the feature shows images from different rural and urban parts of Nigeria. In the background, you hear a voiceover saying that some are hailing Nigeria as a triumphant new dawn for Africa's economic powerhouse, but Nigeria faces some of the same old problems. End of quote. The narrator then names unemployment, poverty, hunger and the terrorist group Boko Haram the documentary also features images of the Chibok schoolgirls that were kidnapped nearly five years ago, which was a politicized topic during the elections back in 2015. We then see images of luxurious yachts on a blue sea contrasted with images of streets partly covered with trash and a voiceover reading, the Nigerian elite enjoys the spoils of rights but corruption while absolute
4: poverty continues
0: to rise. Louise, what do you think about this feature?
4: Well. As with the previous piece, this introduction wants the audience to know that Nigeria is a very corrupt and poor country. You might have noticed that this is the image that is used to portray most, if not all African countries. It's kind of become a frame that's easy to use while it actually paints a very simplistic and stereotypical image of African countries. Also, in the last couple of years, a counterpart to that dominant frame about any African country arose, the one of the rising continent, It's very easy to portray Nigeria as a typical African state along these two extreme lines as, if we just look at the numbers, it's a country of superlatives. Since its independence from British rule on 1st of October 1960, the country hasn't stopped growing. It has become Africa's biggest oil producer, it remains the continent's most populous country, and it's even prospected to overtake the US in terms of population by the 22nd century. Uh, in order to become the world's third most populous country after India and China. So in economic terms, judging from the GDP, Nigeria has been Africa's biggest economy for quite some time. But at the same time, the country has the highest number of poor people, with Africa's richest man coming from the same country. As I said, these numbers make it easy even for mainstream media without correspondence on the ground or the review of experts' analysis to draw a quick picture of the country, which fits the narratives that do not need much explanation to understand that after all, it's just Africa.
0: But however, Al Jazeera doesn't just make these claims, no?
4: Don't they rely on trustworthy sources and provide valuable expert information and analysis? The documentary you just mentioned, Louisa, is actually based on an interview between an Al Jazeera journalist and one of Nigeria's politicians and former World Bank vice president to the African section. I was very surprised to see that the interview was back from 2015 and that they're almost only talking about the kidnapping of the Chiba girls in 2014, which does not say much about where Nigeria is at now, three years after this interview. So when you see the interview in the context of this article, you get the feeling that the publication wants to remind you of these kidnappings that happened five years ago without putting it into a current context. Nigeria is framed as a country where terrorism is a major problem. It's indeed important to talk about this issue with many Nigerians suffering from the insecurity, especially in the northern parts of the country where Boko Haram until today threatens lives. But it is questionable if this frame is adequate and especially well-balanced when actually talking about elections. I think you can see this in other articles too. On the same day, Al Jazeera published an article, for example, that had the headline... Dozens killed in clashes between Nigeria villagers and bandits. I don't want to go too much into detail with this one, as we have to be fair, and this article didn't intend to cover the elections, but current happenings in the country instead. But the words villagers and bandits, again, gives this rather backward image of a country in rural Africa, which adds to the image of corrupt elections when these articles are published at the same time. And if you look at some of the articles from The Guardian, it's quite similar, I think. How is that? Well, The Guardian is a very progressive publication. Its point of views are normally very liberal and they tend to use frames that disfavour stereotypes. But I read one article with the title Nigeria election marred by vote buying, tech failures and violence. And that one, I think, also throws most readers into the image of a corrupt and dysfunctional African country. I'm not doubting the truthfulness of their article. And the article itself describes the events around Nigeria in a more objective way. But the way these events have been combined into one article and especially into one headline paints a problematic image of Nigeria, which I think could have been avoided by simply framing these events a bit differently or using a different headline while acknowledging that this has been the most peaceful election that has ever taken place in Nigeria.
0: Thank you so much, Louise, for having helped us to break down a bit the dominant frames often applied in international media coverage of African elections, with Nigeria just being one example. <coughs> As we figured now, many of the articles we have looked at have only covered a small part of what is currently happening in and around Nigeria. Coming from there, they give a good entry point to the mostly problematic media coverage of elections in any African country. As the journalist Kazim formulated, in the hope of using the ballot to deepen the quality of democratic governance, besides the Nigerians, tens of millions of Africans will go to the polls this year. From the rural hinterlands to major cities, From the continent south to the north, at least 20 nations will hold presidential, parliamentary and council elections. Regional or tribal divisions, as in Libya, and possible dangers arising from the intersection of technology and democracy, including the manipulation through social media, as it has been observed in South Africa and Nigeria, or internet shutdowns by the governments, as in Mali, Chad or Algeria, remain indeed uncertainties in these elections. However. These need to be presented in a professional, contextualized and balanced way, also and especially in international media to a wider audience abroad. As we have just showed, media coverage of elections on the African continent is barely meeting the standards of elections reporting elsewhere in the world. To be able to come to your own conclusions when consuming news about elections in Africa, I will now try to shortly give you some guidelines to look out for in media coverage about elections in general. Scholars Richard Thomas and Stephen Cushon advocate in their book Reporting Elections – Rethinking the Logics of Campaign Coverage for news media to do the following when covering elections. First of all, one would say obviously, a general introduction to the political and social context of the country holding election is needed in media reporting. Election coverage, especially about other countries than the own one, often relies on easy explanations and speculations instead of embracing more facts and evidence. But without such a base, one of the key tasks of election coverage, the promotion of policy over the process of elections, can't be met. This task should mainly aim at providing a detailed and balanced coverage designed to help ordinary workers and the majority of the population. Voters instead of the elites should be in the focus of media coverage of elections, But especially when covering African elections, media often simply reproduces the narratives of the elites that often dominate the information flow. What makes this even more critical is the intransparency of the media's relationship to these politicians. Media consumers get a biased impression of the elections without being informed about the agenda behind. For readers, it is therefore important to dig deeper into the media's political affiliation, interests in the country and the sources it quotes. Of course, international media covering elections in Africa often do not have the voters themselves as main audience. However, they might pursue other agendas of their home countries that need to be unpacked. Thomas and Cushin suggest that media consumers can get a better idea of the elections also elsewhere when a wider range of views is presented. This should go beyond the reproduction of views of politicians and also beyond quoting almost meaningless public vox pops. In the book, the example of interviewing more impartial experts that allow media and the audience to unpack complex policy proposal is given to do better. This is especially of importance when thinking about coverage of elections in an African state. Often, the audience might not have a good knowledge or overview of the covered country and fully relies on information in the media without a chance of getting own experiences and impressions on ground. Also, when covering elections, Both, media and consumers, have to critically evaluate statistical claims and data-driven arguments. In many cases, numbers are presented without or in an unclear context to falsely support an argument, and therefore numbers need to be challenged and questioned. The same goes with election monitoring reports often quoted. Pippa Norris, Richard Frank and Ferran Martinez-Igoma state in their book Advancing Electoral Integrity – that election monitoring reports are indeed an invaluable source of information, especially for international media. And the researchers acknowledge that standards and principles of international monitoring organizations have become increasingly standardized over the years. However, though, confidence in these reports can only be gained by looking for similarities between different reports about the same elections. Monitoring reports of different institutions often differ in their assessments of the quality of the elections and it is on the media to re-evaluate the evidence of the used reports in their coverage. After all, Linda Lee Kate and Jesper Strömberg conclude in their handbook of elections news coverage around the world that there are still many attempts from government sides to insist on or to regulate fair and balanced treatment of political candidates or parties in elections news coverage across the globe. The authors of the book elaborate on different regulatory measurements for this. When it comes to international media outlets, one might argue that indeed they are freer when reporting on any African state than some local media, especially in restrictive countries. However, bias for or against political parties and their candidates can be found also in almost all of their pieces, and the stereotypical display of them doesn't meet the requirements media tend to follow more when covering elections elsewhere. With all of this in mind, it will now be interesting to observe, on the one hand, what is going to happen in major countries on the African continent in this election here, and on the other hand, to see how international media will cover those elections. For you to have an overview what to keep an eye on in the next 10 months, here is a selection of the major elections after Nigeria having made a start. Also people in Senegal just went to the polls this week, but at the production of this podcast official results were still awaited in Algeria. The 81-year-old president Abdelaziz Bouteflika will run for a fifth consecutive term in April. With South Africa holding elections in May, the oldest liberation movement on the continent, the African National Congress of Nelson Mandela, will prove whether it can survive corruption scandals. Also in May, people in Malawi will go to the polls and Mauritius announced elections for mid-2019. Mozambique, Botswana and Namibia will all hold elections in October, with the latter making the land issue between its white and black population a main topic of campaign. Finally, in December, the world's oldest elected president, Beji Kaid Essebsi, is expected to run again at the age of 92 in Tunisia. So, stay tuned! And also don't forget to tune in to our next podcast on Friday in two weeks. Thank you for listening!